0: Hello, and welcome to Stump, Death in Taxes. This is MEEP, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. Today I'm talking about Social Security, again. It's continuing on because even though the Social Security Trust Fund is not going to run out until you know, in about a decade, about 2033 or so, it's a political football right now. And one can be cynical and say, oh, well, that's only because, you know, the various parties are positioning themselves for 2024. And that's partially true. There actually is a real problem right now. And I'm just going to give you a little nugget of information, but the peak of births in the US was in 1957. Those people turned 65 in 2022. And guess what? (laughs) A lot of those people have decided to retire through the pandemic. Cash flows for Medicare. So they're all Medicare eligible now. And some people may say, well, what about immigration? Well, uh, patterns of immigration that those age groups aren't terribly different. We have this pig and a python, and that peak of those born in that year are going through. Now, you're not going to see a peak for that year, age 65 per se, because of course, sorry, with mortality rates, they're dying off. But what's happening with cash flows is things are going in the wrong direction. Uh, cash is going out of the Social Security uh, trust fund. And things are, well, Medicare is a different situation. That's a little complicated. And that's actually my story for today. We're in a transitional period. The trust fund's or the Trust Fund for Social Security, uh, old age benefits are going to run out uh, around 2033 or so to 2035 or so, you know, give and take a few years. And Medicare is more complicated. But what I want to talk about today is how everything kind of interacts. And once you start messing with one part, other parts come loose. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the arguments over some of the numbers. And I'm going to start going all the way back to January. There was a piece in ThinkAdvisor, a crash course in Social Security's funding woes. I will provide links in the show notes to all of these, and you can look at the original sources. So let's go to this piece from January 26, 2023. And there are projections. So there's projections from the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, and then there's the Social Security Trustees Report. And yes, these are partially political, not the CBO so much, um, but the Social Security Trustees Report is partially political. But the Trustees Report does take as input um, the from the Office of the Chief Actuary, which uh does a variety of projections using different uh, assumption sets so there's like a baseline set some aggressive some optimistic pessimistic sets for fertility immigration uh longevity projections and then the trustees which are you know political appointees they make a choice among those different sets but frankly for the um, trust fund running out part, uh, there's not really much of a difference of when it runs out for which set you pick unless, and this is not one of the choices you get to pick. By the way, from the actuaries, we don't have a black death scenario where the old folks die conveniently Uh, from this piece. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has published a new analysis that compares the Social Security solvency projections of the Congressional Budget Office, which is CBO and Social Security trustees, finding there is substantial disagreement in key aspects of the two organizations outlooks. In addition to comparing the two solvency projections, the CRFB analysis also offers a blueprint for restoring Social Security's long-term financial health, pointing to a variety of possible tax increases or benefit formula adjustments that could be undertaken either alone or in concert to put Social Security on a sounder financial footing. Ultimately, the CRFB analysis warns that legislative action is sorely needed in the coming years as the projections of both the CBO and the Social Security Trustees firmly agree that benefit cuts are in store given current funding levels. So they do agree on that. At some point in the early to mid-2030s, benefits could be cut 20% to 30% or more for the typical retiree, and time is quickly running out to act. So yeah, there there are some differences between the projections. Um, the CBO's projections posit that restoring solvency would require the equivalent of reducing projected benefits immediately and permanently by 26% or increasing dedicated taxes by 40%. Okay, hear that number. So for the CBO projections, the shortfall would be 4.9% of taxable payroll, and that's not changing the definition of taxable payroll. And for the trustee projections, the shortfall is 4.3% of taxable payroll, and that's 1.4% of GDP for the trustee projections and what we have. Oh, and then we have some increases. So there's some differences in their assumptions, in their projections. They have different policy solutions, 10 potential policy solutions, and I'm not going to go through them. There's a lot of different choices. Um, I am going to promote something that you can play with, and I'm not going to go through all of these different choices. Um, there's something called the social security game, uh, this is from the American Academy of Actuaries. They have a site, uh, socialsecuritygame.actuary.org. And they have a, a variety of options where you can do tax increases or benefit reductions or alterations or a combination of both to try to uh, narrow this shortfall. Uh, some of the uh, proposals, and these are pretty common proposals. One of them, and I want to highlight this one because this is a very popular one, and this is one I think will go through eventually, is to get rid of the wage cap for uh, taxation. So uh, a lot of people don't hit this wage cap. I have, but eventually because of inflation, I might not. Who knows? In 2022, This wage cap was $147,000. So the first $147,000, you got taxed for Social Security, old age, disability, and survivor's benefits. Now, there is no wage cap for Medicare taxes. Just thought I'd mention that. Um, Now, this was a 2.9% increase over the cap in 2021, which was $142,800. Well, for 2023, the wage cap is $160,000, $160,200, okay, a 9% increase over the 2022 amount. Um, And that's because of inflation. Huzzah. Um, In some years, so from 2015 to 2016, there was no increase in the wage cap. This is tied to to the maximum Social Security benefit that one can get paid currently. Now, here is the thought, that you get rid of that wage cap for taxation, but not for the maximum benefit you can get paid. Um, So this would remove the tie between the taxation and the benefit um and a lot of people are get very unhappy about this because you're like oh if you remove the tie then it becomes more and more of a means tested program i'm like yes and what is your point um the point is of course it becomes less popular with the richer people and the other problem and this is where it gets complicated is that this interacts with federal income tax because of course these social security taxes are deductible from when you do federal income tax and now this is starting to act like a flat tax though for most of us our our overall federal income tax rate and our marginal uh, tax rate once we're above this is higher than the Social Security uh, tax rates. But here's the bigger point. And I was talking with some people who are self employed because the self employed, of course, have to pay. Both parts. Most of us, when we see our pay stub, if we're employed by somebody else, we're only seeing half of that tax on the pay stub and the employer, quote, pays the other half. Of course, all of it's coming out of my total compensation, but we'll ignore that for right now. Um, If you're self-employed, what a lot of them are doing are, of course, optimizing what their tax hit actually is. And some of them may, quote, pay themselves Only up to that cap. And you better believe if they don't get any credit over that cap for Social Security benefits, but they're going to get taxed for it, they are going to optimize their tax, however it is. They may not take that as income. They may take it in various tax-deferred ways, such as retirement savings. Okay, then they max out their IRA. Well, there's other legit, legal ways to shelter their money from taxation. Now, of course, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are saying all your money are belong to us, and I will get to that in a moment. So there has been disputes over the mathematics in the CBO and the Social Security Trustees reports about how significant the impact is of what it would take to make Social Security sustainable without having to do a benefits decrease, at least for people like me. You know, what Social Security originally was intended for was to reduce senior poverty. Well, if that's the case, then why did they have benefits increasing with higher income? Yeah, I mean, I know why it's a political buy-in uh, and that may not be sustainable given the demographic reality. So let us look at what Paul Krugman wrote in an op-ed for the New York Times, February 21st, 2023, why Medicare and Social Security are sustainable. So I'm going to quote from him and then I'm going to quote from a a direct rebuttal, and then kind of a sideways rebuttal. So, um, yes, Krugman has to explicitly make it political as opposed to just talk about the numbers. So, yeah, he's going to talk about the Republicans, yada, yada. So he wants to talk about why it's sustainable. And So I have to try to find the part in the op-ed where he's talking about the numbers. So let me just start with his opening paragraph and then try to find the parts that are about the math. The GOP response to President Biden's truthful statement that some Republicans want to sunset Medicare and Social Security has been highly gratifying. In other words, the party has reacted with sheer panic plus a startling lack of message discipline with both Mike Pence and Nikki Haley saying that actually yes, they do want to privatize or reform Social Security, which is code for gutting it. Okay, so jumping ahead, I'm looking for, okay, so let me try to set the record straight. Yes, our major social programs are on a trajectory that will cause them to cost more in the future than they do today, but how we deal with that trajectory is a choice, and the solution need not involve benefit cuts. Okay, a good starting point on all these issues is the Congressional Budget Office report on the Long-Term Budget Outlook. Okay, and that's, Okay, we're jumping ahead. The current report offers a very clear depiction of both the budget challenges facing our major social insurance programs and the sources of those challenges. And then, um, okay, so jumping ahead, a word about Demography. You might think that the projected aging is all about the baby boomers, but the baby boom is generally considered to have ended in 1964. So The Last of Us, yes, I'm one of them, will hit 65 in 2029, just six years from now. Most baby boomers are already there. That's correct. So why does the CBO project continuing budget pressure from aging? because it assumes that life expectancy, specifically life expectancy at age 65, will keep rising. That has certainly been true in the past, but given America's mortality problems, I'm not sure that it's safe to assume this trend will continue at past rates. Okay, he is correct about that. However, where most of the degradation of life expectancy has come from is not been past age 65. Um, where a lot of our problem has come from like with the fentanyl overdoses and that kind of thing, has been young adults and um, middle-aged adults. And that means under age 65. Boomers, you are old and it's not about you. Um, Where we have had extra mortality over age 65 recently has been mostly COVID and not other stuff. Now, um, it's true, maybe we'll have a bunch of pandemics that will clear out our old folks. Does that sound pleasant? We cannot plan on that to make Social Security and Medicare sustainable. Okay, so we're going to move on. Okay, so they have, he has stuff about the health care cost growth and has, and, and he's correct. We don't know how that's going to grow. And we should not assume that health care costs will necessarily grow, grow at historical rates. He's actually correct about that. Okay. So assuming that healthcare spending is going to uh, to grow at a certain percentage of GDP, you know, you, you can't assume that. Uh, there can be technological breakthroughs and where the spending is going to be, I think it's a little presumptuous to assume that. Um, did you think it was going to come mainly in pharmaceuticals back in the day? Well, that's where a lot of it is, of course. He also has a side note. The CBO used to do 75-year projections, but apparently realized at some point these are of little value because nobody has any idea what the world may look like in 75 years. I used to joke that long before we got there, Skynet would have killed us all. But now we know better. Bing's chatbot will do us in. In any case, the projections now go only 30 years ahead. And yes, this is a little intellectual humility here. Uh, yes, yeah, 75 years. And we used to do this kind of projections as actuaries. There are reasons you might want to do a 75-year projection um, mathematically, even though it's not terribly realistic to do that. Anyway, CBO projections now show social insurance spending as a percentage of GDP, eventually rising by about five points, which is still a lot but not unimaginably large. And here's the thing, half of that is still the assumed rise in healthcare costs. And there are things we can do to control costs that don't involve cutting off Americans benefits. Bear in mind both that US healthcare is far more expensive than that of any other nation without delivering better results, and that since 2010 we've already done quite a lot to bend the curve. And it's not all At all hard to imagine that improving the incentives to focus on medically effective care could limit cost growth to well below what the CBO is projecting even now. And if we can do that, the rise in entitlement spending over the next three decades might be more like 3% of GDP, and that's three percentage points That's not an inconceivable burden. America has the lowest taxes of any advanced nation, given the political will. Of course, we could come up with 3% more of GDP in revenue. Three percentage points more of GDP in revenue. I'm sorry, I am changing his words to be more precise. Okay, Social Security and Medicare aren't inherently unsustainable, doomed by demography. Well, let us see. So I did not go to the 30-year projection. Um, I did see the Social Security 30-year projection, but let's just go to the 10-year projection from the February visual summary for budget and economic outlook from the CBO. And on their third page, outlays by category by percent of GDP, and they have mandatory, it's not really mandatory, discretionary and net interest. Um, so the mandatory, at Social Security and Medicare, is at about 15% of GDP versus discretionary at about 6% and net interest rising. And then when one looks at the various revenues, as percent of GDP. Well, you can go by category, but let's do overall. Your outlays are at about 25 percent. It's, you know, gently rising, but at about 25 percent of GDP, whereas your revenues are at about 18 percent of GDP. That's quite the gap between outlays and revenues, and that's definitely not sustainable, So that gives you an idea of why the trust funds for both Medicare and Social Security are running out. Um, If one looks at where the federal revenues are coming from currently, from the CBO, individual income taxes, you know, that's about 10% GDP, payroll taxes about 6%. Corporate income tax is about 1.4% and other about 1.1%. But let's get to the rebuttals to Krugman's stuff. Uh, Brian Riedel, a couple days after uh, Krugman, had an op-ed in the New York Times. Now, he did not rebut Krugman himself. He was rebutting uh, the State of the Union address by Biden. Uh, So that makes a little that makes some sense. Everybody is responding to what President Biden said in the State of the Union address. And yes, a lot of people are making it political. Oh, Republicans want to kill social security, yada, yada, want to sunset it. Uh, let's remember what the whole point of the trust fund people are like oh it's generational equity well what it really is is so that congress doesn't have to budget for it every year the trust fund gives it a mechanism to keep going year over year Um, that there is an accounting on paper that okay we collected these taxes that were dedicated to social security or to medicare um, even though we were spending this money for other stuff years ago and accrued other debt at the same time because we were spending it on goodies we preferred to spend it on. Uh, and now in 2022 and 2023, as all the boomers are retired and all the money is going out and on paper, the trust fund is going away. So now it's a cash flow problem for the federal government. In any case, Brian Riedel, who's from the Manhattan Institute, so this is more of a, you know, free market, libertarian kind of group, just responding to what, uh, president biden had to say so does i will do the opening paragraph and then skip ahead in his state of the union speech this month president biden pledged to block any reductions in scheduled social security and medicare benefits he also promised that any tax increases would be limited to families that earn more than four hundred thousand dollars roughly the top earning two percent of american families To gather these promises would ensure an unsustainable debt path that eventually requires deeper and more drastic benefit and tax changes than already needed. So jumping ahead. The president's implication that full benefits can be paid without raising taxes for 98% of families has no basis in mathematical reality. Imagine that Congress let the Trump tax cuts expire. Applied Social Security taxes to all wages, doubled the top two tax brackets to 70 and 74 percent, increased investment taxes, imposed Senator Bernie Sanders' 8 percent wealth tax on assets over $10 billion and and 77 percent estate tax on estates value more than $1 billion and raised the corporate tax rate back to 35 percent. Combined federal income, state, and payroll marginal tax rates would approach 100% for wealthy taxpayers, and America would face among the highest wealth, estate, and corporate tax rates in the developed world. Yet total new tax revenue, 4% of GDP, would still fall short of Social Security and Medicare shortfalls that will grow to 6% of GDP over the next three decades. Not even having the defense budget would close the remaining gap. More realistically, if these programs aren't reformed, the middle class will have to shoulder the burden, just as it does across Europe. And the burden is huge. Closing with taxes, the aforementioned Social Security and Medicare shortfalls would more plausibly mean raising the payroll tax by 9 percentage points and imposing a 20% value-added tax. Taxes haven't been raised that sharply since World War II, back when tax revenues consumed a much smaller share of our economy, and there were many more untapped revenue sources. And this is one of the big problems. There is a demographic problem. One of the problems is, of course, there's not enough rich people. Like, Even if the rich people would sit and take it and would actually be taxed that much, and no, they wouldn't sit and take it, by the way. Um, But let's just pretend they would you wouldn't get enough money. And that's part of the problem. So the question is, what is sustainable and what can actually work? But it's like, can you get from here where we are right now to there politically? Eric Bohm at Reason Magazine came up with a direct rebuttal to Paul Krugman. And so that's, you know, answering that Op ed that Krugman did. There are problems with this article as well. Um, So, one of the items he addresses has to do with the healthcare cost growth. And at best, and this is true, it really only makes a difference of a few years of when the insolvency occurs. So, does it really make a difference of a couple of years? not really. And when I saw like 4.3% versus 4.9% of GDP, I'm like, frankly, they're the same number from an actuarial perspective. Yes, it does make a big difference in GDP. That's actually a lot of money, but it's a range. This is, these are assumptions, uh, to quote from Eric Bohm's piece, uh, Krugman speculates that mortality rates might continue to drop. While that might be good news from an actuarial perspective, I'm sorry, we're not going to say that's good news. It seems both morally horrifying and incredibly risky to base a long term entitlement program on the assumption that more people will die at a younger age. In fact, Krugman gets this point exactly backward. Instead of banking on a decline in life expectancy, Congress ought to raise the eligibility age for collecting benefits from Social Security and Medicare. That would create the same demographic benefits on the accounting side, even as people live hopefully longer, better lives. Kregman would no doubt see such a change as an unacceptable benefit cut, but in reality it would restore Social Security to its proper role as a safety net for the truly needy, not a conveyor belt to transfer wealth from the younger working population to the older, relatively wealthier, retired population. When Social Security launched in 1935, the average life expectancy for Americans was 61. That's changed so that program's parameters should too. Now, I had an argument with one of the actuaries who made arguments like this. First off, we shouldn't be talking about life expectancy from birth. We should be talking about life expectancy from age 25, which is kind of the age where you start accruing your social security credits, as it were. So we start from there, not birth. In 1935, infant mortality was a lot higher. And, you know, did we have antibiotics? We didn't have antibiotics then. Uh, there was a lot of childhood mortality too. Um, so actually we need to be looking at life expectancy from age 65. Uh, one of the things to note was what was the labor force uh, participation rate at age 65 or over age 65. It actually was a lot higher and that dropped after Social Security came into being. Now, part of that was because people were working after age 65 because they had to. They didn't have any retirement savings. Um, so this really did help many seniors. But one of the things that we have noted from so, uh, Society of Actuaries' experience studies is, you know, not all groups have the same life expectancy, uh, from age 65 or from age 25, and it definitely d- differs by socioeconomic quintile. So something to keep in mind. Okay, how does Social Security work now? You know, people with the higher incomes get higher S- Social Security old age benefits. Like, well, they pay higher taxes. Okay, but is this sustainable? Can we afford this? Is this really what we should be doing? Again, remember the original stated purpose of the program was to prevent senior poverty. The people with the highest incomes are not the people who need to be prevented poverty. So let me uh read a couple of the response letters to the Brian Riedel op-ed. So I'm gonna start with someone who was... um The president of Social Security Works, this is Nancy J. Altman. So this is someone on the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders side. So I'm going to read hers first and then read somebody else's. So Brian Riedel conflates the finances of Social Security and Medicare. Social Security faces a modest financing shortfall, which can be eliminated by requiring the wealthiest to contribute on all of their income, including unearned investment income. The Social Security Expansion Act, recently introduced by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, would do just that while expanding benefits Substantially, In contrast, Medicare's financial challenges are a symptom of unsustainably high health care costs, private as well as public. It cannot control these, those costs on its own, even though it is considerably more efficient than private sector health insurance. An health care isn't a uniquely American channel challenge. If the U.S. had the same per capita health care as virtually any other industrialized country in the world, the federal budget would project surpluses. If Mr. Riedel is concerned about Medicare's rising costs, he should encourage our elected leaders to get corporate profits out of health care. So a couple of comments on that is, of course, unearned. Investment income is idiotic, and I've written plenty of posts on that. Uh, If other countries have not been able to make it work, the U.S. is not either. So just a thought, as well as, okay, all these other countries who keep their health care costs low, yes and they do it by stinting on healthcare so ask the uk and canada how well it's worked out for them so we're going to move up to somebody else as uh, john a bacon junior from exeter new hampshire this is what he writes My wife and I take nearly $40,000 a year in Social Security payments. We sit on a substantial seven-figure liquid net worth. Of course we like the payment. Do we need it? No. Should we get that much? No. Would we be willing to forego some or all of it? Yes. Should it be means-tested? Absolutely. Do we think politicians, Democratic and Republican, have the courage to set such a course? No, and therein lies one of our current tragedies. While there is little political courage in Washington, the spines of our political leaders could be stiffened if people of means and others demanded that the budget for Social Security be brought into line. So should other substantial costs, such as the military and agricultural subsidies. Let's do it, people, feeling that our children and grandchildren are in for a dreadful ride. Well, good luck on the military and agriculture, um, but... With regards to Social Security means testing, there is already some aspects of means testing within Social Security in terms of the tax taxation of benefits, and this is likely what would continue to happen. So, my expectation is they will get rid of the wage cap on uh, tax, you know, payroll taxes. So, this would increase federal taxation of income. That's what it is. Of course, that interacts with federal income tax because the Social Security taxes aren't, you know, they're deductible. So, you know, you're going to have an interaction there with regards to the whole big pile of money Congress gets to play with. So that's one item. But if we can have some more means testing by making Social Security benefits more taxable, And one of the other letters to the editor was like, well, why don't you make it up to 100% taxable uh, for federal income tax? Um, Right now, it's no more than 85% of a recipient's Social Security benefits are subject to federal income tax. Well, they can make that 100%. Um, And there's some other aspects. So they can make it more taxable. There's lots of different ways that they're essentially making it indirectly means-tested. Um, so they can do more and more of that and they can flatten the benefits more to make it uh, essentially benefits cuts and tax increases. And I'm assuming there's going to be a combination of that to make it last uh, because something like that is going to have to happen unless you have some kind of Black Death, in which case there is a Black Death. GDP is going to be greatly affected. If you thought the COVID pandemic was a big hit and it did not kill off enough old people to have a huge effect on the solvency of medicare or social security if you noticed uh, a black death absolutely would but it would also <laughs> affect you know people of working ages as well and would have a huge effect on gdp and you wouldn't be able to sustain it So yes, actuaries think about this kind of thing. I think about this kind of thing, I should say. Um, I think about all sorts of mortality and longevity stress scenarios. And, you know, there's no free lunch. It, uh, this is not, you know, you can say it's your fault, it's your fault. It doesn't matter. Um, At some point, the piper will be paid and, uh hard decisions will be made. Um, the mechanism is automatic if Congress does not act and choosing not to act is a decision in itself. And you can point figures at each other. It doesn't matter. People will be angry. So enjoy that. You have about a decade to get your stuff together and come up with something. There are a lot of choices and trade-offs to be made, but something will have to come together. Um I think a good starting point is trying to figure out what you're trying to do with these programs. Is it actually a safety net or are you trying to be all things to all people, which I don't think is sustainable. And that's what I think it was trying to do. It started out very modest and then it expanded and it expanded and it expanded. And it was not sustainable because they thought the growth of the boomers was something that would always be around. And it was a historical anomaly. It really was. So enjoy. That's been Stump. Death and taxes. (laughs) Talk to you all later.